You're listening to Kiss My Aesthetic, your go-to podcast for bragworthy branding, marketing, and entrepreneurship advice. I'm your host, Michelle Winterstein of MKW Creative Co. Let's dive into the episode. Greetings and welcome back to the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. I'm so excited to have Amy Schuster on the podcast today. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my gosh, this is going to be a really exciting episode because we haven't had anyone that does what you do on the podcast yet. So for the people that don't know, can you tell us who you are, what you do, and who you help? Yeah, absolutely. So Amy Schuster, I am a fractional CMO and COO, and I help B2B organizations, usually between the $5 million to $100 million ARR. Okay, nice. And can you give us some background of how you ended up doing what you do? Because I want to kind of know the plot lines that got you to this spot. Mine's going to be a lot longer than most of your guests, because I think I'm a lot older than your guests. I listen to a bunch of your podcasts and everyone's about 15 years younger than me. So, oh my gosh, <laughs> amazing. But I really like to start out in my first job. And one of the significant factors in those moments were we were still mass blasting press releases on fax machines. Like that's how long ago I started. <laughs> the first organization I worked with didn't have a website, right? We were part of the first website being built. There was no email marketing. There was no Google ads. Like None of what I do on a day-to-day basis existed when I came out of college. So for me, the plot lines are very, very extended arc of learning. From that first job, I moved into legal marketing, which is this really, really niche area of professional services marketing where you are working for lawyers and law firms. And it was an incredible experience at learning how to sell the invisible which really became the theme of my career. I started off there. I moved into software as a service. And then my last full-time job was with a company called Miller Hyman Group, which does sales training. And when I was approached by them, I said, you know, this really isn't my gig. I do startup. I sort of did the professional services thing. They said, we want to launch a SaaS product and uh, we're looking to exit in 24 months. I was like, cool, that's pretty much a startup. So let's go. Yeah. (laughs) We did that. We exited to Corn Ferry at the end of 2019 and then the pandemic. And like everybody, I feel like it is the point of differentiation for so many of our jobs and careers. And I ended up going out on my own and have built this fractional practice for CMOs and COOs. And as we discussed, helped B2B organizations sell the invisible. I love all that. We have so much juicy stuff to cover in this because you've already mentioned like 10 things that I've mentally flagged that I want to circle back around on. But for someone who doesn't really understand this landscape or the verbiage that we're using, let's kind of bring it back to basics and really define like, what does fractional CMO actually mean? And what does that role look like on a day-to-day? Like, how are you helping your clients kind of get from point A to point Z? Absolutely. One of the biggest differentiators for me, full-time versus a fractional is literally the amount of hours. I'm, a, I'm no longer a W-2 employee. I'm a 1099. I come in usually somewhere around 20 hours a week, so 80 hours a month. And I am embedded in the business as much as humanly possible, right, for those 20 hours. I've usually got an email address at the organization. I've got line of sight into the financials. I know what the business goals are. And most likely, I'm working on managing through people issues because those are always there at the point in which I'm in. So 
how that differentiates from a full-time role or even a consulting role from the full-time role. I'm not in the day-to-day minutia. I don't have to do things like, you know, year-end reviews anymore. I'm not necessarily being forced to do all of the necessary trainings. I'm able to really focus those 20 hours on delivering so much ROI for their marketing and their marketing department. And I don't have to worry about the rest of the stuff. So as a marketing practitioner, super fun. I don't have to do all the crazy corporate stuff. I just get to do what I love to do. And the difference between that, a fractional role and a consulting role is in a consulting role or a project-based role, I'm really brought in for one thing, right? I'm executing on one thing. I don't have an email address with them. I'm not doing usually any in-depth analysis of long-term goals. I'm, I'm just executing on the thing that they need done. So whereas, you know, when you're in fractional, you're really getting to be part of the team and the organization, but with the benefit of not having to necessarily do all the other corporate stuff that I spent 20 years doing and I don't necessarily need to do anymore. Oh, I love the sound of that. That sounds amazing. And I can kind of mimic that structure for the branding and people that might be listening to this. It's like the project-based stuff versus retainer. So it's like project-based branding. We're going to do a rebranding versus we're going to be your on-retainer creative director, your on-retainer social team, et cetera, et cetera. Both come with their pros and their cons. And I'm sure we'll get into that as well. But you have a lot of experience, as you mentioned at the beginning, of helping people sell the invisible. I would love to hear from you, like what that even means. <laughs> and number two, like what are some of the things that you notice with creatives and with more like business-minded? Because I really feel like there's the best marketers have the creative brain and the analytical brain. Do you agree? I do. So they see and evaluate good creative, but then they can also see how the creative informs the analytics and vice versa. So how do you kind of explain that within your role, but also walk us through this whole selling the invisible idea? Yeah. So selling the invisible to me is the idea that I can't go out and touch the product that I'm selling. I can't really put it in a cart and go ahead and press purchase and put in a credit card. Most of the organizations I work with are agencies like the one that you have or others that, you know, sales cycles might be 90 days. Sales cycles might be 18 months. It's a very, very different experience than I want to buy Doritos in my Instacart and I put it in and I click, you know, purchase. So that to me is selling the invisible. I can't ever go out and touch it, right? It's either a person who's selling themselves and their experience or a software as a service. And to be clear, some software as a service can be cart enabled, but the majority of folks that I work with have a longer sales cycle. So that's really what I mean by selling the invisible. And that's difficult to do sometimes, right? We talk about it being a long lead time. There's a lot of trust and a lot of communication that has to go into that. There's also a lot of brand building happening, right? So I think people often conflate branding with marketing, but they really are two different efforts. How do you explain the difference between those two terms to people? So let's start with the point about the longer term sale, which I think is a really important one to hone in on. So most people who are purchasing a B2B product get themselves about 85% of the way in their education before they ever raise their hand and say they want to talk to you. So in those particular situations, right, with some of these longer sales cycles, there may be months and months of people going onto your website, reading through your blogs, searching on Google for problems that they're trying to solve for which they are landing in your ecosphere. Those opportunities are so ripe for you to be educating all along the way 
up until the person needs to raise their hand and say, okay, this is the moment I need to do this. Then your sales organization comes in and starts talking. So what's the difference between brand and marketing? I tend to think that brand is the way you feel and marketing is the way that you act. Mm -hmm. But I think depending on the organization, they really do come in and out. I work in a lot of funnels, right? It's a lot of sales marketing alignment. It's a lot of funnel management and brand awareness up at the top, almost like pre-funnel stage. I always imagine a funnel. I'm like drawing it for you on a whiteboard right now that you guys can see. But there's brand awareness up at the top. So it's all the different ways that you're educating someone that 85% that you're doing before they ever hit the funnel for the rest of the 15. And then you're like straight up marketing to them, right? Then you're really putting a ton of stuff in action. Above that, there is absolutely marketing that goes on, but that is brand awareness. That's where you're trying to help people solve problems in the moments that they have them. Well, and arguably that entire funnel is also the brand. It's the business, but it's also like you're getting those branded touch points at every stage as well. So that's where the branding consistency and like brand identity and verbal branding and visual branding, like all of that stuff, it's all mishmashed together. So there's a lot of those efforts that need to happen. But I think as you're talking about working in funnels, like the brand awareness at the top, what are kind of the next bits down the funnel to get someone to actually close that sale? And then that timeline, like we talked about, varies from business to business, but getting someone to like know about you to then work with you. What are some of the action steps that like brands or creators or people who have agencies like I do, like what's the meat of that? There are all kinds of different points along the way. And all of what we do as marketers, to your point, can get mishmashed above. Like the social proof that you're looking for, that might be something in the pre-funnel stage, or it might be the thing at the bottom that like actually pushes someone over into a paying client. It really does depend. So I look at funnels in a much less romantic way, right? It's marketing qualified lead, sales qualified lead. Do they become an opportunity after they become an opportunity? Do they, you know, what are the different stages of the organization to a closed one or a closed lost? And that's a very specific and typical funnel management for any type of B2B organization. My guess is most of the folks in your audience aren't looking at it quite that way, whether CRM is a part of that organization or not. It's an incredibly great skill to have as a creative or as a marketer to start to understand how people come into the pipeline and how you build audience, but it can be very overwhelming. And I understand that. Yeah, no. And it's something that you don't have experience doing it until you do it. Like you can read all the books and take all the seminars and do all the online courses. But it's like, it's one of those things that, like you said, there's so many variables and so many different parts to it. When someone comes to work with you, what are the issues that you're helping them to address right away? Like you talked about it being like, you're helping them solve a lot of people problems to start, which are inextricably linked, right? But what are some of the things that like, you're really proud that you like, I know I can do this with my eyes closed? So sales marketing alignment, for sure. I think a lot of the organizations that I work with have marketing functions and have sales functions and they don't talk to each other or they are trying to talk to each other, but like most great relationships going past each other. It's a therapy session for another day. Yeah. (laughs) That's something that I work a lot on. I also work with organizations, especially at the earlier stage, I'm moving beyond those founder sales. When the founder is the only seller and how they transition that, what they're able to do to set themselves in the organization up for success is a really great skill. If you can start to flex it earlier in the organization, the better. Right. We're just about to hit that turning point 
with my team. Oh, there you go. It's really exciting. So I've got an online business manager, Cody. We recorded an episode together as well. She's in charge of all the proposals, contracts, invoices, et cetera, but I'm still fielding a lot of the discovery calls. So our process is they're filling out the contact form. We're qualifying them as a lead. They're getting on my calendar. I'm getting a chance to talk to them, understand what they're looking for in more detail, give them more specific work samples, et cetera. And then I kind of ping pong it back to Cody who pulls together the proposal and goes forward. And now that Cody's on for more hours, she's starting to understand and predict. She's like, this one doesn't seem like a good fit, but this one, I think you're really going to like. So she's like tiptoeing right on the edge. And we're almost getting to the point where I'm about ready to have her call the person that's not a good fit and be like, hey, thanks so much. But you know, for all these reasons, we're not going to be the right fit for you. That terrifies me as a founder, because I've been doing this for nine years myself. So how do you kind of help that person that's like me that's in that spot where it's like, how do I even start to begin to trust someone as not the founder of my business to start doing these on my behalf? Yeah, without cloning yourself, because I just want to clone myself. (laughs) Yeah, it's actually one of the things to talk about. You can't, you can't scale yourself. You are not scalable. You are a human. So one of the ways that I try to work with the founder and make sure that they're able to comfortably transition that is number one, do you have a sales methodology? Do you have a means by which you are qualifying and understanding and working a sale? Because once you have that, and once you adopt that, it's really easy to transition that to the next person. And that methodology, there are literally dozens of them. Obviously, I've worked with a couple, Miller-Hyman Group and Challenger. I think they're great. They have fantastic online tools. They've got great support systems, but there are dozens. Pick whichever one you want. Pick an amalgamation of all of them, but pick one and figure out what the sales methodology for your organization is going to be. Because you to Cody, to whoever is going to replace Cody, or as Cody moves on in the organization and there's a new Cody, Scales Cody, you guys need to all be talking the same language. And if you're not using the same sales methodology, it's going to be a really difficult conversation. So I would say number one is figure out your sales methodology. Number two, define and sell to the right clients. Have those ICPs. Make sure that you guys are having good conversations. And it sounds like you already are about what makes a good client and what doesn't. Getting that tech stack stood up. I talked a minute ago about a CRM. There are plenty of CRM systems. And these are different than your client management systems, right? Sure. You don't necessarily want to use your client. And I know a lot of creative agencies struggle with that. You've got your client management system. Get a separate CRM system. There are plenty of low weight ones. Zoho is one active campaign HubSpot. You can get these different CRMs that are going to allow you and Cody and future Cody to all be working in the same space. So making sure you have that tech stack. And then one of the things that I base every engagement that I have on is understanding and or implementing SEO. SEO to me is one of the strongest tools a seller can use. And most salespeople are like, oh, no, no, that's marketing. You want to talk about your 24-7 lead generation, SEO all day long. Right. So if you can find a way to either partner with marketing, find an SEO organization, I don't understand why more salespeople don't glom onto SEO, learn it, drive it, use it. It is one of the best sales tools there is. Because you're getting that ideal client right in your hand. Exactly. Like they're searching for the thing that you could be the answer to. So it's, you don't need to go find them. They're going to find you in a lot of ways, right? 85%. They're going to do all their own. Totally. So those are some of the things I would work on with Cody and make sure that you guys are getting those up and running now so that 
as Cody gets closer, as the next Cody comes on, like you've got some systems. Right. Okay. I'm loving this idea. And that's getting you kind of out of the founder sales slump. And even if it's just, do you recommend that? Like outsource the ones like to kind of go from me doing everything to getting to the point where I'm not on all the discovery calls. Because we've had crazy months where I had 10 discovery calls in a week. And that takes a lot of your mental energy, right? So it's like, how do you get to a point? What is that course of action to like, say, because for me, the most logical thing is like, okay, lob off the ones that aren't a good fit. Have Cody just dedicated to say like, okay, I want you to go talk to all the ones that came through the contract form that don't have the budget. They don't have the timeline. They're not in the industry that we want to work in. They're not a qualified lead. Like I want you to call them and cut them loose. Then the next step of that is like, I don't know, maybe I don't ever see her. I haven't even thought of a reality where I'm not taking the initial discovery call. There's a reality where you don't take the discovery call. That's insane to me. I've watched my parents grow their interior design and remodel business for the last 25 years. And my mom, who's the founder, still takes all of her discovery calls. So this, I think this is such an interesting brain teaser. <laughs> Listen, your mom may never have wanted to scale beyond what she has. Right. If there is a scenario in which you're looking to grow and scale and move beyond that and want to do more different, absolutely there's a world in which you do it. It also becomes that your business can exist beyond you. You are not the single point of failure for that organization. And what I would say to you is one of the best ways that you can prep the organization is figuring out what that methodology is and documenting each one of those calls. I use something called a green sheet, which is an old Miller-Hyman group tool. I'll mock it up and I can share it with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That'd be amazing. You can take every discovery call and utilize the same format for every single call to take those discovery calls. All of a sudden you start to see the patterns and all of a sudden Cody can read through and see how she can take over for you and how you can create so that you are not that single point of failure. So lots of ways to move beyond it if you want to. Yeah, it's really interesting. My mom is self-employed. My sister is self-employed. I'm self-employed. My mom's interior designer. My sister's a wedding planner. I've got my creative agency. And it's so funny to like be in the call in the car when one of us is taking a discovery call because we all use the same script. And I don't know if we like learned it from each other or if we just kind of have like just morphed into it. But it's always starts off with like, oh, so tell me about your project and what you're looking for. Because I talk about this on the podcast all the time. I'm looking for those like booby trap questions that are going to qualify that person of what I want to move forward or not. Like, do they have their answers ready? Are they explaining that they've listened to the podcast? They've read the website. They've seen a case study. Are they mentioning a referral by name? Like, those are all the things that are green flags for me. And then after they've done their spiel is like when I come in with like, okay, this is what we do. This is who we help. This is what it looks like. We've solved a problem like this before for XYZ client. And then these are the next steps, right? I can see now how that's very formulaic and like could be outsourced. Formulaic could be outsourced also is, you know, there are ways to expand upon it and grow it and make sure that you document it. I don't know if you've ever read the book, The E-Myth. I did read Built to Sell. Have you read that one? I really liked that one. Yeah, many, many moons ago. E-Myth I really like for founders. I think it is a great Bible for how you create replicable processes and how you use sales fundamentals. Because most people are self-taught sales, right? Nobody goes to school for sales. Nobody gets a degree in sales. Most people who are good at sports or were pre-law but decided not to go to law school, they're like, yeah, I'll try this sales thing. That's how you end up in sales. There are so many methodologies, so many systems in place that can help make it so much easier and so much easier to outsource. You just got to get your hands around it. 
And it's the process and it's the documenting the SOPs and making sure that we have checklists and barriers and workflows and all of that stuff. And I think that, again, this doesn't come naturally to a lot of creatives or founders. Like if you're the creatives with the creative brain or you have this like great idea or you have this great business, like I think there's a tendency as well. And I wonder if you run into this with your clients of a founder of being really, really hard on yourself that you don't know all the things. Do you run into that often? I do. I think founders are so interesting, right? Because you have so many insecurities, but you also have such an oversized ego. And I don't mean ego in the terms of I'm better than you. It's ego in terms of I have to believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that I'm going to succeed because otherwise you're the rest of the world that wouldn't start a business, right? Like you have to believe it's going to succeed. So you have to have a decent enough ego to believe in yourself and believe that it'll work despite all of the stuff where people are telling you it's not going to work. But with that comes the flip side of the coin, which is, yeah, definitely a lot of insecurity masked sometimes as frustration or, you know, mostly can be more guys that way. I think more women are willing to stand up and say like, I don't get this. I want to put smarter people in the room, you know, help me figure it out. Right. What other things do you notice in working closely with founders as like consistent themes or consistent things that your clients are struggling with even like recently? Like what's kind of floating to the surface as far as like, yeah, you know what? Everyone seems to be dealing with this right now. The word right now is AI, right? But I feel like that is such a thorny discussion, an interesting discussion. What I'm seeing thematically obviously is revenue decline as a result of this very, very strange time from an economic point of view, and just a lot of uncertainty. I mean, the world I live in relies around a lot of fundraising, and there's just not a lot of capital right now. So I think that is a stressor that people have, and I see a lot in the conversation. But I mean, AI is it, right? Everybody wants to know, is it going to replace me? How am I going to use it? How will it make my life better? Do I think it is any one of those three things? No, I think it's all of them. It will replace some jobs. It will supplement some jobs. I saw a great meme the other day that was like, AI isn't going to replace you, but the people who understand AI will replace you. You just have to evolve with it. Like Good creative fundamentals, good content fundamentals, good SEO fundamentals, they will always be there. And there's always a market for that. How you use AI to support that is how you will win and how you will succeed. I've got to imagine it's like someone saying that they don't want to use the internet. Like, it's kind of like, it's at this point now where it's going to be so ubiquitous. Back in my day, that was a thing, right? Like, right. Back when we were mass blasting faxes, we're like, oh, this internet thing, I don't think it's going to go anywhere. Like, you got to get on board the train. Like, you may make some stops along the way and figure it out. But yeah, you got to get on board and at least be open to it. Totally. And if anything, to get your time back on the stuff that took you forever. I had this whole kind of pseudo debate on the podcast recently when it came to AI is like, it's not out of the question for me to use tool like MidJourney to generate a logo. Like that doesn't mean that the client can't also go to MidJourney and generate a logo, but are they going to have, you know, the decade of experience and the taste and the confidence and even to just use it as a jumping off point, like, no, that's what they're hiring us to do, right? As creative strategists and like understanding the use case of something that spits out as an image, that's bridging the gap, right? Like just because a client can make their own website doesn't mean that they want to. Just because the client can go learn social media doesn't necessarily mean that that's going to be 
what they do. And if they are going to DIY again, like you're going to find yourself capped at your hours and your capacity and your experience and everything. So the argument of like, is it going to replace all of our jobs? I'm like you. I agree. It's like that meme. It's like, it's not going to replace your job, but the person that understands how to leverage it is going to take your job. Yeah. Technology is always presented as a panacea. And I think when we look back 10 years ago at the CRMs that came out then, the marketing automation systems that came out then, this was just put it in your business and it will run. I mean, that was ridiculous. What that has caused in the interim is, again, so much of that, at least in my world, sales marketing misalignment, because we were banking on all of these technologies just to talk to each other, right? Salesforce will represent the sales team. Marketo will represent the marketing team. Those two systems will go together and we won't need to hire anyone. Well, like, of course, that just was never going to work and it doesn't work. And you have to hire the people around it. So I'm a technology enthusiast. I like to say I'm not a pearl clutcher. I don't think AI will be the answer. I think it will be an answer. Right. Also, based on your experience of having like your corporate background that you do, how do you feel that like workers and like workplace mentality has changed? Because obviously like COVID was a huge disruptor and the opportunity to freelance now is like greater than it has ever been. I started my business in college as a college student doing graphic design for $15 an hour, then learned about digital nomading, was digital nomading from 2017 to 2019. And I remember being on digital nomad trips and they were saying that the statistic was like by 2030, 33% of the American workforce is going to work remote. Obviously, COVID expedited the shit out of that and basically made it so that everyone was doing work remotely. But besides just the remote work aspect, how do you feel that like workplace culture or new hiring practices or people that are kind of like this next generation of workers, how has that changed since when you started? Or what trends have you noticed? Interesting. I would say there's a lot of questions in there. I'll start with the rise that I've just seen in the terminology around you know, what I do in fractional CMO. I looked it up at one point. In 2018, the term fractional CMO was searched something like 218 times. In 2022, it was more than 2,000. So yeah, it's exponential growth in people looking for alternatives to what we've always done, right? Consulting, full-time work. And there's some new middle grounds that we're all starting to explore. It's interesting. I just went to New York for a couple of days for an offsite with a client. And, and I've done a couple of those. I've been doing fractional since 2020. So obviously the pandemic impacted our ability to do that. But I've taken maybe half a dozen trips for clients. The clients say the longest are the ones I've met face-to-face, like hands down. Really? Hands down. It is. It's those. Now, again, you have to remember, I'm not in a transactional business, right? I'm helping these folks on a longer term basis for the most part, understand their long sales cycles. So creating those longer term relationships is super important. It doesn't mean I have to be on site. It doesn't mean I even need to be there. Wherever there is, if there is there, three days a week. But my most successful work relationships, long-term business clients have come when I make sure to meet face-to-face. I think that's significant. I think that's something that I notice as well. Like I think the clients that I enjoy working with the most and the brands that I enjoy working with the most are the ones that you get that FaceTime because there is so much lost in digital. 
And granted, like 99.9% of our business is digital. There's team members I still haven't even met in person. But we had a team retreat back in April. And even just having people physically in the same space, the productivity is super high. And also, you just get that nuance of like the personness that I feel like we all lack. Yeah. So I wrote an article in Fast Company a couple of months ago about this. And the premises of it is that I was sitting in the inauguration, if that's a word, investor, I think is the real word, which I didn't know that was a thing, for my friend who is a federal judge. And just looking around at the group of women that I was with, and we were together because we all started working together in the mid 2000s when I was back in a law firm and we had stayed friends and we've stayed in each other's lives and we've been each other's champions and support systems. And I wouldn't have been there if I hadn't been forced into an office. So the whole genesis of the article was like, what if I had started working in 2020 and I didn't have that opportunity to interact with people on a regular basis for work? Now, there were certainly downsides to it, right? The microaggressions, the difficulty working with troubling managers and commutes and all of that stuff. If I had been given the chance, I would have worked remotely. Of course. <laughs> but I am so grateful that I wasn't given that choice, that I was forced to go do it because it made me better. It made me better at what I do. It made me better at relationships. And people feel very strongly about this. When I put this article out and on LinkedIn, I got a lot of backlash, especially from younger folks, people in their 20s who say it's an antiquated idea. and they have plenty of really strong relationships formed and curated through digital. And I'm not saying they're wrong. I am just providing my experience that I know I wouldn't have been in that room. I wouldn't have been in that room. Right. And just because they have plenty of meaningful relationships doesn't negate the fact that you also got value from working in person, right? I've had a different path in that I started my business, never went to a full-time job, never made a resume, a CV, never went to an interview, like have just done this business for the last 10 years. And alternatively, I was lacking that. I was lacking a sense of being around people with different ideas and different backgrounds and different thoughts or different industries. And that's why I ended up digital nomading. I sought that out. I went to a group that was organized like houses for entrepreneurs and remote workers. So I met people from countries all over the world and I went and sought out those experiences because I felt I lacked that and that I was creating a ceiling to my own success by not being the person that was actively going out and interacting with people in different spaces that like it wasn't transactional, it wasn't work-related, right? Because I didn't have coworkers. I was literally just solo for six years, like working with clients and didn't have anyone to even bounce ideas off of. So if you're the person that has that or if remote work is the only thing you've ever known, I am right there with you, like encourage people to go out and meet people in person. And this podcast is kind of an extension of that idea. But I think if I could do this podcast in person, I would totally do it. Oh my gosh, we should do the podcast in person. Mostly I want to go on one of your trips because they look epic. Oh my gosh. Yes. No, the trips are great. That sounds phenomenal. I know. We've got a few clients right now where we're helping them launch their podcast. And that's kind of the idea on everyone's brain recently is to create some kind of bespoke community experience where you're then also creating content. So you're like front loading an entire season. So you're inviting people that you wanted to invite anyway. And then it's like part mastermind, part marketing content. 
So those are the things that we're helping our clients with. But I'm like, every time I talk to a client about it, I'm like, why am I not doing this? <laughs> why am I not taking my own advice and doing this? Right? Uh, yeah. I mean, I've listened to a few of your episodes and you are really good at getting other people to sponsor and pay for those things. Like you figure this out. I'm there. I'm in my Great. Amazing. Mallorca, let's do it. Totally. No, Sydney, the last episode, she's one of those people for me. That's like we were coworkers on another project, kind of. We're both consulting like independent people, but we really clicked and have stayed in contact and have created that kind of coworker like relationship of kind of being peers to each other. And it's having those is like invaluable, absolutely invaluable. And it's something I think people who work remote lack. Yes. I think you went into it from a proactive perspective in a different period of time. There are just so many people over the last three years. And I just, I want to like, just put my arms around them and be like, it's not always been like this. Like we can get there. Because I think a lot of that, a lot of women especially are struggling. And I think some of the gains that we made up until the 2020 timeframe have unfortunately fallen aside too. And I don't want to see that continue to happen. And I don't have the answer, right? I wish I could say like, wave the wand and like, here's the solution. I very honestly say I don't have it, but I do surface it as a concern. I surface it as something that I want to talk about because I think the more that you talk about it, the more that the answer will come. Yeah. We talked about building strong relationships. We talked about some books that we love. What are other ways that you like to up-level your own expertise? Like what opportunities do you seek out? I know you're doing people's podcasts, which is a great way to do that. But where do you go for information or inspiration? You know, I get a lot of my inspiration, innovation from more traditional sources, which I know sounds really weird, but I am a big New York Times reader. There is inevitably two articles a night that I'm like, yep, that applies, go, that that applies, go. I don't know if you saw the article the other day on the Rouse pasta sauce. Everybody's obsessed with it, right? Became this huge thing in the pandemic. So they just sold for like $2 billion to some, to look at the store, one of those. And I'm working with another client right now and I'm sending her that article. I'm like, here, this is a great example of a company that's doing everything right and everything better and elevating to the next level. So I see a lot of similarities there. So I like to go there. I also, it's one of the benefits of being fractional or consulting is I've got a bunch of different clients and almost always I'm pulling from one to help the other. Even though they don't know that it's going on, it's that learning. And I don't know if you see this in what you're doing too. Totally. Because you start to notice that people are curious about the same things, right? Like, I start to notice that if I've got three, four clients asking for the same type of thing, that we need to pay attention to the why. Why does everyone want to do a merch collection? Why does everyone want to start a podcast right now? What's the why? But just like you, I'm kind of a news junkie in that I love reading those articles. Like, that's so fun to me. Like, I'll talk to my sister on the phone, the one who owns a business. And I was like, do you want to hear today's headlines? And I'll go through my news apps and kind of pick out the stories that I think are interesting. The one that blew my mind is Subway is going to sell for $10 billion. Subway sandwiches. I had not seen that with even all of the individual franchises. Uh-huh. And because they're opening 4,000 locations in China. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So wild because then also it's such an interesting case study in like brand sentiment. Like I wouldn't think that Subway is doing very well at all, but maybe that's part of the upset. Yeah, You know, it is interesting. So it's good. It's definitely important. I think as a marketer to stay up to date, 
listen and notice when people are asking for similar things, like you just said, like let your experiences with your clients inform how you advise other clients. I think that's really smart. 100%. Love that. Well, where can everyone find you, follow you, work with you? I know you mentioned LinkedIn, but you've also got a website for us to check out. Kind of plug yourself at the very end here. Absolutely. So Amy at bandwidthstrategy.com. The website's Bandwidth Strategy. Love connecting with folks on LinkedIn. Happy to provide any of the resources we talked about. And I also like to tell folks I leave two slots open at any one, any quarter or year opportunity for founders or individuals who are looking for marketing support and just looking for like a, you know, a monthly check-in. So I have one of my two slots filled right now, but I do have a slot open if a founder is looking for an hour a month where they can just push pull ideas. There's obviously no cost for that. I just consider it paying it forward. Oh, I love that. That's a great idea. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was so great talking with you. I feel like we covered a lot of topics, but really juicy ones. Thank you for having me. Oh my gosh, my pleasure. We'll catch you next time, everybody. Bye. Thanks for joining us for the Kiss My Aesthetic podcast. Don't forget to follow along and leave us a review anywhere you listen to podcasts. We'll see you in the Kiss My Aesthetic Facebook group for years and years of behind the scenes content and over 5,000 connections with fellow creatives. For show notes from today's episode, please visit mkwcreative.co slash podcast. This episode was edited by Berta Wired and theme music comes from Eliza Vera and Nathan Menard. Catch you next time. Catch you next time.